Welcome to the Women's Wellness Psychiatry Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. I'm your host, Anna Glazer, MD, a reproductive and integrative psychiatrist here to help you make sense of the complex world of women's mental health. If your goal is to improve your emotional well-being, find fulfillment, and feel like your best self, you're in the right place. Welcome, my listener friends. I'm very glad you're here. As always, a reminder to subscribe to this podcast. Just hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this podcast. Podcasts with more subscribers are actually up a little bit higher in the algorithm when folks search for new podcasts, and that means that more individuals will be able to find this helpful content. As always, also, please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues and family and throw in a five-star rating and a fun little review. What we're talking about today it will be discussing the myths, misconceptions, and misunderstandings about hormones, specifically female hormones. Now, the first thing to think about is which hormones are we even talking about? And this is an interesting thing that comes up quite a bit. I have a number of patients that come to me and say that, you know, I think my hormones are unbalanced. Can you check my hormones? And it's almost like hormones with a capital H. But the question really is, which hormones are we talking about? Because in the human body, in the female human body, we don't have just the sex hormones, not just estrogen and progesterone, although I think that's what most individuals are talking about when they come to me with that particular question. But even estrogen is a little bit of a vague term because we have multiple kinds of estrogen in the human body. The most common one that we talk about is the hormone that's produced by the ovaries, and that's estradiol. But there are also estrogen hormones that are made by the placenta and by fat tissue, for example. So even estrogen is a pretty vague term. And when we're talking about hormones, we talk about not just estrogen and progesterone. There are so many other important hormones, all of which are interconnected in various kinds of feedback loops. We have, for example, cortisol. That's a really important one. We think about that one as the quote-unquote stress hormone. We have melatonin, which we often think about as the circadian rhythm and sleep hormone. There's thyroid hormone, which has so many different responsibilities. In fact, the textbook, if you were to open a textbook on endocrinology, which which is the study of hormones and various hormonal systems in the body, those are very thick textbooks. And those fellowship programs are very extensive, those training programs in the field of endocrinology. So hormones are very complex. But let's go over some of the most common misconceptions and misunderstandings that I get asked about from various patients that come to see me. Let's start with this idea that postpartum depression is a hormonal issue. Now, hormones are definitely part of the reason that can lead to the development of postpartum depression. But postpartum depression is a very complex condition. It doesn't have just one simple underlying reason. Now, there are precipitous drops in hormones at delivery, for example, which can lead to a vulnerability postpartum. But there are so many other components. We need to think about genetics. We need to think about social support systems and the environment. What's the family history? What about the role of sleep deprivation? That's huge in the postpartum. And so many other factors. And that's actually the reason that I think integrative psychiatry is so valuable is because it looks at all of these different root causes and synthesizes them together to think about, okay, what are the different reasons why someone might be struggling 
with symptoms of postpartum depression? And then from that place, what are all of the different potential interventions, both traditional and complementary, that could be used to help with these kinds of symptoms? So postpartum depression, while it has a hormonal component, is not just a hormonal issue. The next myth or misconception is this idea that menopause isn't a concern until my 50s, that menopause is something that can be really not even thought about until a woman hits her 50s. The average age in the U.S. for menopause is 51. But perimenopause, which is this time of transition towards menopause, can last seven, eight years. And so when the average age is 51, that certainly means that average, there's a lot of women who are below average, above average in terms of age. And if you've tack on those seven to eight years, well, then it makes sense that a lot of women ought to start thinking about this actually in the early 40s. And many of my patients in their early to mid 40s are noticing some symptoms that are consistent with perimenopause. And that doesn't just mean that your period becomes irregular. You could still continue to have a pretty regular menstrual cycle and be struggling with other symptoms of perimenopause. And those could be physical and physiological, for example, night sweats or brain fog or fatigue, or they could be psychological and psychiatric, like challenges with mood, anxiety, attentional issues, or again, brain fog. And so I think it's important to recognize that this is something that can happen in one's early to mid-40s, not just women in their 50s and older, which I think is the stereotype or the myth. The other interesting phenomenon that I found in my practice is I have a lot of women who are having a child a little bit later, so perhaps in their early 40s. And there's this interesting transition that happens from the postpartum through into perimenopause for a number of these women. And that can be a very challenging transition. Hormones are changing and fluctuating. And that's actually the most important thing to notice is that menopause, perimenopause is not just about hormones decreasing in a consistent fashion because it doesn't happen in a consistent way. Hormones fluctuate. They can go up. They can go down. If you check hormones, and this is something that I get asked about a lot, is, you know, can you check my hormones? Well, that might not necessarily tell you something if you're just checking from one time point, because during perimenopause, hormones can actually increase for a period of time. You might have high levels of estrogen, and then you might have low levels of estrogen. So it's important to recognize that perimenopause can actually begin in the early 40s with various kinds of symptoms and various kinds of changes in the menstrual cycle. And that actually leads me to the third myth or misconception that I want to mention, which is that an individual just has to deal with these kinds of perimenopausal symptoms. And this is actually something that comes up both with perimenopausal symptoms as well as premenstrual symptoms. And those could be symptoms of PMS or the more severe condition PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And there's this unfortunate assumption with either PMDD, PMS, or perimenopause that a woman just has to deal with it, grin and bear it, so to speak. And that's really unfortunate because these kinds of symptoms can have a significant impact on functioning. 
it can impact the way that you interact with your family, with your partner, with your children. It could interact with the way that you connect with colleagues, the way that you perform at work, the way that you accomplish tasks, how productive you are. It impacts cognition. It impacts your mood. It impacts so much. And grin and bear it is not really an appropriate solution. There are multiple ways, multiple different kinds of interventions that can be useful that will help with symptoms, whether we're talking about perimenopause or premenstrual challenges. And grin and bear it is not the solution. Now, if we're talking about treatments and treatment options for managing perimenopausal symptoms, this now leads us to the next myth or misconception, which is that hormone therapy is risky. And if you'd like to listen to a separate podcast just solely on this topic, please take a look at last season's episode on perimenopause and mood. But the reason that this misconception came into being was based on a study that came out now a couple of decades ago, actually, which was the Women's Health Initiative study. And this took a look at women who are prescribed hormone replacement therapy. The challenge, though, is that a lot of the patients in that particular study were, number one, quite a bit older than the women that we currently prescribe hormones for. So those women were often postmenopausal women in their 50s or even 60s, whereas these days when we think about prescribing hormones, we're talking about women who are going through perimenopause. And as we just discussed, that's often in the early to mid-40s, maybe late 40s and early 50s. Additionally, the types of hormones that were prescribed back then are actually different than the types of hormones that are prescribed these days. Back then, oftentimes the doses of the hormones were higher, and what was prescribed was called conjugated estrogen. Conjugated equine estrogen is a combination estrogen rather than the estradiol itself that is often prescribed these days. And remember, estradiol is that hormone that is traditionally produced by the ovaries, and that's the hormone that tends to decline through perimenopause and at menopause. And so that's the hormone that's important to replace. Oftentimes these days, we're also prescribing not synthetic progesterones, but micronized progesterone, which again is much more consistent with what the body naturally produces. That's often where the term bioidentical tends to come from, which is, I think, a, a term that itself has a little bit of stigma, at least in the medical community. But really what it means is that we're prescribing estrogen and progesterone that are very similar to the ones that are naturally produced by the body, which has a very different set of risk factors. I would encourage you to really consider whether this is something that might be appropriate for you and discuss it with your OBGYN, your primary care doctor, whoever is going to be able to help you with the prescription of the hormone replacements and recognize that, yes, there may be some increased risks with these kinds of hormones and each individual's risk should be carefully assessed. There's also a lot of benefits. Estrogen is so important for so many functions. It has cognitive protections. It can protect from a vascular perspective. It helps protect our bones and our muscle mass. There's so many benefits to estrogen, not to mention, of course, the primary reason that an individual would be taking these hormones, which is to manage those really unfortunate and functionally impactful symptoms of perimenopause. Hormone therapy does not have to be risky. 
And it's important to consider it as an option for yourself if you're really struggling. The next myth that I want to talk about, or the next misconception, is this idea that we should blame our hormones when something has gone awry. Hormones are not always the underlying reason for, for example, weight gain, skin problems, sexual problems, whatever the primary concern might be. We sometimes have a tendency to immediately jump to blaming hormones. And I do think that it's important to certainly rule out medical conditions that have hormone imbalances when assessing these kinds of problems. But hormones are not always to blame. And it's important to recognize that in order to look at all of the other potential reasons why someone might be having these kinds of challenges. For example, some medications can have side effects leading to all of the above things. You know, I mentioned weight gain, skin problems, sexual problems, just as three examples. Or stopping or changing a medication can lead to those kinds of issues. Weather and environmental changes, you know, dryness in the air can affect our skin. Sleep and stress can impact weight. I work with a lot of patients who are having challenges with weight gain or weight neutrality. And one of the things that we often talk about is, okay, how are you sleeping? And what's your stress level like? Because individuals who are having trouble with sleep, who are not getting enough sleep, and who have high levels of stress often struggle with weight. Psychological conflict, for example, can also impact sexual intimacy with a partner. So it doesn't have to always be just the hormones. It's really important to look at the whole person, the whole body picture, and think about what are all of the other biological, psychological, lifestyle, and other factors that might be playing a role in a particular concern or complaint, not just jumping to blaming the hormones. The next myth or misconception that I want to mention is this idea that I should check my hormone levels regularly. And if I'm in the normal range, it means that there's no problem. That's something that I get quite a bit when I'm talking with patients is an individual might have gone ahead and checked their hormone levels and all of the numbers seem to be in the green zone, so to speak. When I'm working with a patient, before I even move to checking hormones, I actually like to think about why. What am I trying to learn by checking particular hormone levels? And what is that information going to do in terms of changing our treatment plan or our management? It's interesting because we're currently living in a society where everyone wants to know all of the numbers. And there's this fun little term these days called biohacking, where people are using all kinds of tracking tools and all kinds of laboratory data and other numbers to try to hack their biology, so to speak. And I'm not sure I'm a fan of that particular term because I don't think our biology is something that needs to be hacked to the way that we think about, you know, hackers on the computer, for example. I think that our biology is something that needs to be supported and optimized. And there's many ways to do that. Certainly data and numbers can help with that, but not always, because it's really important to know how to interpret that kind of information. One thing that can often happen when you get a bunch of data is that it doesn't mean a whole lot because it's one point in time. For example, if I have two patients in front of me and they might actually have the exact same levels of estradiol, estrogen in their body, but they actually utilize it very differently, and that could lead to two very different clinical pictures. 
So the numbers aren't always meaningful unless you know what you're using them for, and therefore it's not always helpful to check hormone levels. The other part of what I said is that normal range means no problem, and that's also not always the case. Again, it goes back to how an individual body uses and processes that kind of hormone. This happens actually quite a bit with thyroid function. And there's a lot of individuals whose primary thyroid number, which is often reported as TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, can be in the normal range. And without follow up testing and assessment, an individual might just kind of accept that. But a lot of individuals have what's called subclinical hypothyroidism. For example, individuals who might have some symptoms that are consistent with low thyroid, but their number, their TSH, is in the normal range. So normal range does not always mean no problem. And it's important to work with someone, with a clinician, with a physician who's able to help you interpret the numbers of the laboratory studies that you obtain and synthesize them with the clinical picture in order to ensure that you're getting the best kind of care. The next myth or misconception that I want to talk about is this idea that has come up quite a bit that if you have a condition called PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome, that that means that you're definitely going to have trouble with fertility. And yes, there is an increased risk of fertility challenges with PCOS, but I've had patients come to see me who basically have accepted the fact that they'll never be able to have children if that's something that they desire because they have this underlying condition. And so I just want to mention briefly that PCOS does not equal infertility. It could mean more challenges, but there could be multiple reasons for those challenges. And the other thing about PCOS is that it's a syndrome. The word syndrome is actually in the term PCOS. That's what the S stands for, which means it's a constellation of symptoms. And everyone with the syndrome can present slightly differently. And it also means that a lot of the different symptoms can be addressed individually. For example, individuals with PCOS sometimes have what's called insulin resistance. And that means that they have trouble processing blood sugar and insulin in the body, but that's something that can be addressed with various kinds of biological and lifestyle modifications. So I think it's important to recognize that PCOS, while a challenging diagnosis, does not always equal infertility. And I just mentioned that here because this is something that can lead to hopelessness for a lot of patients. And I've worked with a number of women who have this condition and really struggle psychologically with it. And we can definitely talk more about this in a separate podcast, but I just want to mention this particular myth as one that comes up occasionally in my practice. Finally, the last myth that I want to talk about is this controversy over the term adrenal fatigue. Now, the adrenal glands, they sit atop the kidneys and they're responsible for cortisol production in the body, which is the stress response. It's the fight or flight or freeze response. The problem with the term adrenal fatigue is that it's not recognized by conventional medicine. There was a systematic review that was conducted in 2016 where the title of the review actually is Adrenal Fatigue Does Not Exist. And what they did was they searched a whole bunch of different articles. They found 58 studies that fulfilled the criteria, and they concluded that there's no substantiation of that particular term as a medical condition. 
I think part of the reason why that's the case is that the term itself is actually rather vague. And so I've never diagnosed anyone with this because it doesn't help with an understanding of what the problem is and therefore what the solution might be. Instead, what I do is talk to my patients about the relationship of the adrenal glands and cortisol on the rest of the body. There's a complex hormonal system known as the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. I talk to my patients, many of whom do have chronic stress, whether it's a formal diagnosis of anxiety or another condition, and the relationship between that stress and the sympathetic nervous system overload that can happen from chronic stress. When we're talking about the HPA axis, we're thinking about the hypothalamus, which is in the brain and it releases hormones on a 24-hour circadian cycle which then impacts the pituitary gland and then the adrenal gland. Now, in most healthy folks, cortisol follows a particular curve, usually with a spike in the morning time. For some of my patients, we do testing of that cortisol level, and it's not usually surprising when someone's results do not align with the normal curve. It's usually pretty predictable. If I have a patient in front of me who's really struggling with chronic stress and high levels of anxiety, and their sympathetic nervous system, that fight-or-flight-or-free system, is constantly on overload, and that could be because of, for example, post-traumatic stress symptoms or other kinds of stress and anxiety conditions. And when we test that particular individual's cortisol curve, it's really not surprising when it doesn't follow the normal curve, when there might be spikes of the cortisol throughout the day, or when the, the curve might be a little bit flatter than usual. There could be many different ways that the curve is different. And what we know is that the HPA axis is impacted by stress. The adrenal medulla releases adrenaline, epinephrine, in that fight or flight or freeze response. And that in turn impacts the entire system through various feedback loops and cortisol release. The problem, however, and this goes back to something that we've talked about throughout this podcast, is that a single point in time, of checking hormone levels does not always provide us with the entire picture of what's happening in the body. And so if your hormone levels in this case are tested and your cortisol level happens to be in the normal range, which can be a pretty broad range because again, cortisol actually changes throughout the day depending on where in the day you are. There's a normal cortisol curve. And so if the level happens to be normal, that doesn't really tell us anything. It doesn't tell us about all of the stress or all of the other kinds of challenges and stressors that are being placed on your body, on your physiology, and on this HPA access. The challenge is when an individual who's really struggling with these kinds of issues goes to see a clinician and they're really told that there's nothing wrong with you or that it's all in your head. That can be very, very dejecting. It can really induce a sense of hopelessness and helplessness because the individual, the person, the patient is really struggling clearly with these kinds of symptoms, but the numbers, the labs, don't necessarily help us understand exactly what's going on underneath. So even if you go and get your labs done and traditional and conventional medicine will say that you don't have this condition of adrenal fatigue because your hormone levels happen to be in the normal range, that doesn't mean that it's all in your head. And it doesn't mean 
that you can't benefit from treatment to help reduce the physiological stress on your body because of the psychological stress as well that's taking place. Treatment can include certain botanical options that can help the body respond to stress. It can include nutritional changes that can make a difference. We know, for example, that there's a relationship between sugar, glucose, and cortisol levels. Exercise can play a role. And there can be really good utility in stress reduction tools like mindfulness and meditation. So the two main takeaway points that I want to stress here is that if you are a patient, getting your hormones checked is not always the most helpful thing because levels might not necessarily tell you about how your body is utilizing those hormones and what different interventions that could be valuable to you might be. And if you're a clinician, to not dismiss patients whose hormone levels are in the so-called normal range because they could absolutely still be struggling with symptoms. And so today we've talked about a lot of different myths, misconceptions, and misunderstandings about hormones. Is there another one out there that I missed? Let me know. I'd love to cover it on a future podcast. Thanks for joining me for this week's episode. As you know, my goal is to share with you the most helpful information that moves you towards emotional well-being. If you have suggestions or questions, I'd love to hear those. And I also always appreciate a rating that will help others find this valuable content. I'm looking forward to connecting with you again next week. Please note that while I am a clinical doctor, this podcast is not a substitute for nor should be taken as medical advice. No specific health advice is being given on this podcast and no physician-client relationship is created by you listening to this podcast. All information provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only.